Hello friends, I have to tell you all about C60 Purple Power. Since I started using C60, which may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man, I feel amazing, and you should too. I have more energy, I sleep better, and I've lost over 30 pounds. But please go check it out for yourself. It has so many amazing benefits. Just click the link in the description or visit c60purplepower.com and use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10 to get 10% off your order plus free shipping. That's C60 Purple Power. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Randall Carlson. Before I bring him on, I want to tell you about how you can protect yourself from harmful EMF radiation with EMF Harmonized. They offer protection from harmful electromagnetic frequencies for your phone, computer, or tablet, and, of the, uh, and your routers. I have one on my computer and cell phone. It's just a little disc that goes directly under your devices. I've already noticed a difference, not feeling as groggy, sleeping better at night, having more energy during the day even after spending hours in front of my computer and near my phone. Uh, you can also get their awesome bracelets. They offer the same protection as the strips. The products were created by a mechanical engineer with three decades of experience in EMFs and telecommunication. Just use the link in the description to check out EMF Harmonized and protect yourself today. Also, subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on LBRY.com. It's our official backup channel, and we also have a brand new show called Beyond Classified, exclusively on Rockfin, which is an amazing new, uncensored, decentralized platform for free-thinking content creators and independent media. And finally, you can now get tickets to Forbidden Knowledge NewsCon 2021. It's going to be April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th with 12 amazing presenters. Please visit ForbiddenKnowledge.News to check out this year's awesome lineup and get your tickets today. Tonight, I want to welcome to the show Randall Carlson. He is a master builder and architectural designer, teacher, geometrician, geomythologist, geological explorer, and independent scholar. He has nearly five decades of study, research, and exploration into the interface between ancient mysteries and modern science. He has been an active Freemason for over 40 years and is a past master of one of the oldest and largest Masonic lodges in Georgia. He has been recognized by the National Science Teachers Association for his commitment to science education for young people. His work incorporates ancient mythology, astronomy, earth science, paleontology, symbolism, sacred geometry and architecture, geomancy, and other arcane scientific traditions. For over 30 years, he has presented classes, lectures, and multimedia programs, synthesizing this information for students of the mysteries. It is his aspiration to effect a revival of lost knowledge towards the goal of creating the new world based upon universal principles of harmony, freedom, and spiritual evolution. Mr. Carlson, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Well, I'm doing very well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be awesome. I've really been looking forward to speaking with you. Your research really covers some of my favorite topics, hidden history, ancient cataclysms, occult mysteries, and so much more. And since, you know, this is your first time on, I'd love to, to hear a little bit about what really got you, first off, into Freemasonry, and was it 
the uh, involvement in Freemasonry that uh, got you interested in ancient mysteries and cataclysms, or was it the other way around? It was the other way around. Yeah, I, I, uh, I got interested in, I started getting very interested in earth history right out of high school, pretty much. Um, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors, hiking, traveling around, um, and camping out and generally being by 19, by, I'd say a couple of years out of high school, I had spent, you know, summers, uh, in the Rocky mountains and, in Utah, in Washington State, in Idaho, and uh, got really interested in geology about that time. And of course, this being late 60s, early 70s, it was also a very interesting time politically. If you think in terms of the spiritual evolution of the human species on this planet, it was a kind of a very interesting time because it was a definitely a period of, of uh, interplanetary pollinization, I would think, uh, I would describe it as that because it was a, such an exchange of ideas that was taking place during that time, ideas coming in from lots of different cultures in a, in a way that had, was unprecedented at that time. Um, and plus all the political upheavals, the experimentation and consciousness that was going on amongst so many folks. So there was a lot of things forces and influences converging at that particular time. But so all of those things were kind of <clears throat> played their part as well. And I had, um, I had the, uh, I guess I'd say the luck of the draw to get exposed to some very interesting people during that time that uh, taught me things and awakened interest in some of these subject matters. Uh, <clears throat> so I would say 69, 70, 71, uh, 72 in those years is kind of where I really started asking a lot of questions, you know, looking at the world around me and, and really getting curious about, you know, having the instinctive level that whatever I had learned that there was a lot more to the story than, you know, than sort of what the mainstream was presenting. That became obvious to me, even though I couldn't really formulate it to myself. I, I couldn't necessarily coherently think through and go, okay, I know that, uh, you know, uh, the way things are now is not the way things always have been. You know, I, I had learned enough geology at that point to know that the idea behind geology was that everything happened with this interminable slowness, gradualistically. Um, and, you know, it was coupled, the idea of geological gradualism or uniformity was also coupled very much with the ideas of Darwinian evolution. It was taking place very incrementally, not even noticeable from one generation to the next, but all cumulative overly long periods of time you would essentially get from, you would have a continuum and you'd have a species at one end and a different species at the other end of that continuum. But the whole process was, was a very, it was, it was almost indiscernibly slow, likewise with earth changes. And so those were ideas that I kind of began to become aware of in, in realizing that this was forming a backdrop against which all thinking about our own history was taking place. And um, at the same time, I looked at, uh, I got very interested in, in the whole question of consciousness change. Um, and as a consequence of that, I explored a lot of different traditions, spiritual traditions, religious traditions, um, you know, philosophical traditions, 
ideas about this is where I first really got started getting uh, exposed to ideas of eschatology, the idea of the end of the world kind of scenario, right? And having spent a lot of time in the Western states and really in having grown up in rural Minnesota, we spent a lot of time up in, in northern Minnesota. And um, there were a lot of Native Americans up there. And we used to go up there and, and go fishing with my grandfather and stuff. And there'd be a lot of Native Americans. And of course, I didn't have a lot of interaction with them, but I knew that there was this other culture there. And, you know, as I came of age, I uh, lived in Minneapolis uh, in 1971 during the uh, this, the siege of uh, at, uh, at Pine Ridge in South Dakota. There was the, the wounded knee whole situation. And I happened to be living within the Native American uh, section of Minneapolis um, on Franklin Avenue. I had a staying with a friend in an apartment there, and I would look out the the window of the apartment onto the parking lot, and right on the other side of the parking lot was the American Indian Movement headquarters. So I attended some of the de demonstrations with them and went to some of the stuff. And at that point, I kind of got exposed and kind of got interested in the culture of of the Native American people, and um, that led me into you know, going into some Native American mythology, which I found interesting because as a kid, I was just utterly fascinated and obsessed with mythology, reading the Greek myths and the, the, the Norse myths particularly, which is the stuff I had access to. So I had this interest in, myth, in, interest in mythology. And then the little bit of exposure that I had to the Native American traditions, I quickly saw that there were parallels um, that uh, sort of further inspired uh, curiosity, I would say, about how these parallels came about. And and um, then I I studied with a uh, a Brahmin priest there in uh, at the who was a Sanskrit professor at the University of Minnesota for two years and studied meditation and uh, Brahmin ritual, which was very interesting. Um, and through him, I met a Himalayan Swami, Swami Rama, studied with him and learned these techniques and traditions of the Shankaracharya and the succession of masters and things, and some of the traditions of, of yoga, and, uh, uh, which led me to some reading into the Vedas. So as I read into the Vedas, uh, here again, more parallels. You know, the stories you begin to see that what eventually after 10 years of, of these kinds of exposures, I came to this realization that was like each of these traditions was like, you know, different fingers. And you just, if you're just looking at the fingers here, look, four separate fingers, but really they're part of the same hand, see? And that's kind of what, what began to, to dawn on me. It, it took 10 years before enough pieces fell into place. And in the summer of 1972, I was with this group. We were, uh, uh, it was a yoga group studying under this Brahmin priest with the, um, who was in turn studying under uh, Swami Rama. And we bought land in Northern Minnesota in the, in the woods up there. And we, uh, there was an architect in the group and he was very much inspired by the work of Buckminster Fuller. Have you ever heard of Buckminster Fuller? He was a, he was a mathematician yes, and a, yeah, yeah, good. Um, so anyways, he designed a couple of uh, dome structures based upon 
uh, Fuller's geometry. And one of them was a melding of Fuller's geometry with concepts from Islamic geometry. And so my father uh, was a builder, carpenter builder, who built many houses. And in this group, there was myself and my two younger brothers. And between the three of us, we had most of the carpentry and building experience. Um, so when it went time to build these two Buckman, these two fuller domes up in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, sort of we got drafted to be, I guess you'd say, lead carpenters. And so then in figuring out how to build these things using the geodesic geometry, I found very, very interesting and stimulating, which led me into a study of Buckminster Fuller and Buckminster Fuller's geometry, <clears throat> his work on synergetics. Um, so we built these two uh, domes, and one of them, the one that was particularly influenced by the design of an Islamic mosque, was featured in a national publication called Shelter, which I think is sitting right on my shelf over there. I might grab it if we have a break or something. But anyways, it was featured in this in this book, Shelter, which was um, a book that was um, presenting uh, ideas of, of building and design and architecture from all of these varied cultures around the world, right? I mean, anything you could possibly think of would have been in there, you know, from yurts to, you know, to, to teepees to um, even, even igloos. I mean, it was covered the whole gamut of shelters that people lived in, but not only lived in, but also worshipped in and worked in and so on. So this thing, this project that we built was featured in that publication, and it was given a whole page right up, and it was a big, oversized, glossy, kind of slickly produced publication. And of course, because our handiwork was featured in there, I procured a copy of it. And once I got it and I started reading into the history of architecture in these all these different manifestations, and there was some treatments in there of some of the proportioning systems that were used uh, and some of the geometry, the principles of geometry that were used um, to develop these, these templates and these patterns, uh, whether it was, um, you know, a Gothic cathedral or an Islamic mosque or a, a Buddhist temple. What was interesting was that there was similarities in their execution, in their design, in their conception, even though they might have manifested materially very, you know, very distinctly. Obviously, if you look at a Buddhist temple in, in Thailand or Cambodia, compared to an Egyptian temple, you, you know, you're not going to have any mistaking which is which, are you, right? Think about a Greek temple, a, a, a Buddhist temple in Cambodia, and uh, uh, and an Egyptian temple. Okay, they all look very different, don't they? I mean, you'd have no trouble distinguishing, oh, this is Greek as opposed to Egyptian. But, and then you come to Native American, you can look at, uh, in, into the Americas, and you've got Mayan culture, Mayan temples. And, and again, the same thing. You, a Mayan temple has a very distinct outer manifestation. But underlying all of these, there is a sort of a common template. And this is kind of what I became aware of by in this book, Shelter. And it was the first place I really ever, in, that I can recall encountering the idea of the golden section. And it gave a little brief description of the golden section and how it was derived geometrically. Now, this is 1973 when the, when the book came out. So 
by night from the time I got out of high school in 69 to 1973 is when really these interests all solidified and they sort of kind of the geometry came in there in the building because I've since that time that was 74 was when I really began in the construction industry 76 is when I went on my own established my own business and then during the 80s is when I joined forces with my brother and we became a design build firm. So people would come to us and uh, I took, uh, in the 70s, I took engineering courses and drafting courses to learn how to do geometric drawing so I could draw plans. So that was the launching of the, of the business end of it. But I continued my studies in all of these various areas that um, interested me. I did uh, go, I get, I went to college for about three years, um, majoring in geology with um, classes in astronomy and mathematics primarily. But I have to confess, I'm a dropout. Um, I had a lot going on and having a business. Uh, but my purpose in studying geology was not looking for um, a career, uh, you know, in the, for with government or in the energy industry or any of that. My my you know, um, majoring in geology was because of my interest in earth history as an avocation. I already had a vocation, right? What I had was in my spare time, I didn't do a lot of the things that, you know, quote unquote, normal people do. Like I didn't watch much TV. I, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of interest in sports other than my own activities, being out hiking and things like that, primarily swimming and canoeing. Those were the things I like to do, but that didn't require a lot of time. And of course, when you're hiking and you are studying geology, the two kind of go hand in hand, you know, you could, you can kill two birds with one stone. So, um, that's kind of the, the background of it. Growing up in rural Minnesota, even early on, I, I got very interested in, uh, you know, we had such a, a, a tremendously clear sky at night back in the 50s when I was a little kid. And remember many times my dad and I being out at night, you know, and I'm learning to identify the stars. So I, you know, probably from the age of seven, I could quickly identify Polaris and know my way north. You know, I knew how to find the Big Dipper. From the Big Dipper, I could find Polaris. But then it went beyond that. I could, you know, Cassiopeia and then Orion and then the 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 Tar uh, Taurus, the Bull. So the I, you know, I got this love of the stars and astronomy. And then when I was nine for my birthday, maybe it was Christmas. I don't remember which. My mother gave me the subscription to the All About Book Club, and every month a new book would come and it might be one month all about electricity the next month all about reptiles next month all about the planets and every month i would wait you know with anticipation i would get the book and then i would devour it usually within a few days so i was part of it having having a family that was supportive of you know things of the mind um you know, my dad was an independent guy, worked for himself. Him and my grandfather had a company together, Carlson and Son, and they designed and built about 200 houses. So growing up around the building and the construction 
you know, I had lots of the toys I played with were as a kid were blocks that both my dad and my grandfather would make block sets. Like my father would make interlocking block sets that, you know, he would mortise and tenon these pieces and you could fit them together in all kinds of ways to produce different kinds of buildings and shapes and things like that. Um, so I had a lot of those kind of toys, which I think, you know, in retrospect, I mean, yeah, that had a lot to do with it because, um, you know, when you're four five, six years old, and those are your, a lot of the toys you're playing with, in addition to the regular toys kids had in the fifties, which was things, you know, um, anyway, so that's kind of it, you know, growing up outside the one other thing I will mention where we grew up, which was Northwest of Minneapolis was right on the margin of the, uh, the superior lobe of the Laurentide ice sheet. So where we lived, we were surrounded, of course, Minnesota has 15,000 glacial lakes, right? Because the great glaciers came down over Minnesota, Wisconsin, and when they receded back and they melted, they left, you know, thousands and thousands of lakes, which are basically the meltwater puzzle puddles. We had land on one of those little meltwater puddles that was half a mile wide and no quarter mile wide and three quarters of a mile long. So I grew up pretty much right on that lake or it's in its vicinity. So uh, one of the things was that where we lived was right where the margin of the ice sheet was. So in periods of expansion, we would have been under the ice and in periods of recession, we would have been exposed. And so for tens of thousands of years, we were in this, in this region where there would be regular glacial encroachments and in recession. So the whole landscape was shaped by the glaciers and the presence of these glaciers. So early on, I remember my, I think it was my dad showed me a picture uh, in a book that was, it was from, uh, you know, it was a picture showing, showing illustrations of what the ice age would look like. Uh, I'm seven or eight years old and explaining, well, this was, you know, where we lived here. And so one of the places we used to go regularly, as a kid when for weekend outings was on the St. Croix river, which forms the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. And there's a place up there called interstate park. And I don't think it was called this back then, but we used to go there and it was basalt outcrops next to in this, where the river Valley narrows. And there are some basalt outcrops there that the surface of these outcrops are maybe 60, 70 feet above the river. Well, we used to go there as kids and, um, what makes these place unique is a series of giant potholes, round holes that are drilled into the bedrock. And I remember going there, particularly my grandmother on my, my dad's side liked that place. And we would go up there with, I would go with her and, uh, uh and my grandfather and, you know, she, she would explain that, you know, it was made by water, you know, when the, you know, when there were glaciers, there was a lot more water and it created these potholes and things. And then there was, um, a place I've told this story, but in 1969, there was a, a, a on the um, where the Minnesota River, right there south of Minneapolis, near Minneapolis St. Paul, the Minnesota River and the Mississippi River converge. And to the west of there is a flat area on a bluff looking above the Minnesota River Valley. It's the bluffs about 200 feet up, uh, they're about 200 foot high bluffs. And the river valley in this one place called, uh, it's called Eden Prairie, and there's an airport there. And 
they used to have just outside the airport back in the summers in the late 60s, they would have set up a stage out in the field and they would have rock concerts. And uh, I went to, I, don't, I have no idea, it was probably a local band. I don't even remember who was playing there, but, you know, go there to hear the rock concerts on three or four different occasions during the summer of 69 on one, 1969. One of these occasions, uh, breaking the music or whatever, I, I wandered off away from where the crowd was gathered on the, the flat area. Cause it's a flat at the top of these bluffs. That's why there's a, uh, there, there's a, a, a county airport right there, but I wandered away and, and walked over to the edge of the bluff and I was looking out over the Minnesota river Valley and three miles away in the distance, you could see there was another set of bluffs, right? And then down in the valley below me was the modern Minnesota River, right? And as I'm looking there at the Minnesota River and it's flowing and, and, and it's, there's a bank on either side with a little, uh, uh, you know, a vertical displacement and then a flat area, kind of a floodplain area, and there's the river, Right. And I'm looking at that and then looking at, I'm standing on this bluff and I'm looking at this opposite bluff and I got this sense that that looks like a little version of what I'm seeing here. It, it, was, a, it was a vague sense of scale and variance. Um, and I had no idea what the, of the concept of scale and variance at that time, but it was just this this, it was a, a very distinct impression that I had that stayed with me. Um, still to this day, I think about it, and even to the point where about three or four years ago, I was back in Minnesota, and I went and actually found, I think it was the same spot that was sitting on when I saw that. In the interim, though, apparently it had been uh, logged off, you know, sometime before the time that I, before 1969. And, and it had considerably grown, the whole valley had grown over. There were now, it was quite green and forested and there was some development in there. So the striking similarity between the small and the large was no longer as obvious as it was in 69. But nonetheless, that was kind of it. You know, I would say growing up in a rural environment with a lot of time out spent outdoors, uh, is where a lot of it started. And then being a voracious reader from an early age and being interested in these kinds of subjects. So those are kind of the, 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 the foundation stones of everything I've been kind of doing since has been following in those pathways. <clears throat> yeah, that's, so that's really cool. Led me into some pretty interesting places. Definitely sounds like it. Way. Definitely sounds like it. I mean, that's, that's a fascinating, um, <clears throat> bio in life so far um now when we're talking about ancient cataclysms i've heard um mainly um some of the researchers that i've had on you know the most important date of you know 12,000 to 12,500 years ago there's a major cataclysm that reset everything but there's evidence of multiple major cataclysms that could have been complete resets throughout history right absolutely Absolutely. There's evidence of multiple catastrophes. Now, amongst catastrophes, the 12,800, 12,900, I think, is what we would, what is now usually being referred to as the Younger Dryas Boundary. That one does stand out. Uh, it's probably the most, I, I, I would think it's almost 
certainly the most catastrophic event of the last three to five million years. And, but that's not to say that, I mean, there have been, there was a major Bronze Age catastrophe that could have reduced the global population by more than half, uh, maybe three quarters. Uh, there have been other catastrophes. There was a catastrophe at about 8,300 years ago where there was a global, uh, suddenly the temperature dropped precipitously in a very quick, short period of time, right in the middle, actually, of the what's called the Holocene optimum, climatic optimum, which was the immediate post-glacial era, which was actually quite warm, up to one to three degrees warmer than the current warm period that we're in, which is uh, well established by scientific studies, proxy scientific studies from that time including evidence of higher sea levels, including levels of um, boreal forests, uh, shifting their ranges, plants that grow at altitudes, you know, being able to grow 300, 400, 800 feet higher than they grow now. Um, multiple lines of evidence have, have converged on the, on the idea that the Holocene climatic optimum, optimum was warmer than now. Okay, but then we had, a period, a period that looks like it was a very uh, catastrophic disruption at about 11,600 years ago when the Younger Dryas terminated. There was also what appears to have been a, a catastrophic episode at 14,600 years ago. So the, the, the Pleistocene-Holocene transition that took place that was whose most obvious outward manifestation was this shift from a glacial global glacial environment to a global interglacial environment really took place over about 3000 years with the first episode at about 14.6. And it apparently involved when I say 14.6, I mean, 14,600 years ago, which apparently involved a very rapid and accelerated melting of the great ice sheets. Um, and then that was followed by a, a, a relatively gradual warming that was pretty much consistent with the Milankovitch changing orbital geometries between Earth and Sun. But then that was interrupted at about between 12,800 and 12,900 years ago by another event that apparently produced uh, some very catastrophic melting, but also associated with um, some major fire uh, events incendiary events on a perhaps even global scale. And uh, that was where one of the major episodes of megafaunal extinctions took place was at this Younger Dryas boundary. And then, so that was the inception of the Younger Dryas. The termination of the Younger Dryas was another uh, catastrophic period. So <clears throat> those three alone, it, it, the, the, the cumulative consequence of those three events was sea level, the total sea level rise of about 400 feet, um, a major shift of biomes around the planet, the disappearance of about 6 million cubic miles of ice, um, which is what caused the sea level rise, uh, the extinction of about half of all animal species over 100 pounds in body weight globally, um, the collapse of the clovid culture, uh, major temperature shifts, so it was a <laughs> it was a hell of a time. Our universe is incredible, surrounded by mystery and beauty, and many of us have questions about our past, present, and future. 
October Hallam is an intuitive medium with over 20 years of experience. She has assisted people with discovering their path by understanding their past and connected the living to their loved ones who have made the transition. She is currently offering readings through Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, phone, and in person. You can reach her at theancientgift222 at gmail.com. Now, you think that one was uh, caused by a, an asteroid impact? Well, the, the asteroid signature is very strong at the 12,800, 12,900. I'll say the 12.8, 12.9, the Younger Dryas boundary, the inception of it. Yes, the asteroid signature is very, very dominant there. I've not seen any convincing evidence that there is an asteroid signature at the 11,600 or the 14,600. So I'm open to the idea of a solar event, kind of event that, that Robert Schock talks about. Um, Robert has, has, I don't know, he may have modified his viewpoint now. He was initially uh, supportive of the the in impact hypothesis, the idea that it might have been a, actually a comet. Uh, then he abandoned that idea and went full bore with with a, a solar event. But um, he may have modified because at one point when the 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 impact uh, evidence was first proposed, it was attacked by there were factions that. Um, were very much opposed to it, um, that marshaled uh, the mainstream press to try to denounce the idea. Because in retrospect, what you see is that the factions op opposing it were also tended to be supporters of the, uh, the so-called Blitzkrieg hypothesis, the, the human overkill hunting hypothesis, that the megafauna uh, went extinct primarily as a result of overhunting by humans. Um, and this idea has been around for decades and decades. It had sort of started falling out of favor uh, in the 60s and 70s um, for multiple reasons, which we could go into if you want. But with the politicization, politicization of science that has taken place in the last few decades, um, one of the things now that is part and parcel of the whole global warming scenario is the sixth great mass extinction scenario. That when you say sixth great, it's referring to the five great mass extinctions in earth history. Um, you know, the late Ordovician, the Devonian, the Permian Triassic, the, the terminal Jurassic, the Cretaceous tertiary. And these events were profoundly catastrophic to the global biosphere and the global environment um, in ways. I mean, if you take the Cretaceous tertiary, that's considered right in the middle of the five in terms of severity. I mean, come on, you had global firestorms, you had months of darkness, you had alternating. First, you had a global cosmic winter rapidly replaced by uh, a superheated environment. You had acidic oceans, you had acid rain on a global scale. I mean, the confluence of destructive forces at the end of the of the uh, Cretaceous period is is almost difficult to even imagine. We are not like this picture that I took behind me. Here's a very typical day on Earth today. We don't see darkness. We don't see 
uh, trillions of tons of acidic material in the atmosphere. Um, <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> it's not to say that humans aren't having an impact on the global environment. We certainly are. Of course we are. What we are in now is not comparable to the Great Five. It's not even remotely comparable. It's not comparable to what happened even at the end of the last ice age in terms of what was going on in the environment. Because, um, and so the idea of the sixth great mass extinction is now coupled with the idea of climate change. So we are causing climate change. The climate is driving the sixth great mass extinction. And with, if someone questions the scenario, the, the typical response was, and here's, here's the connection, is that, well, look, there's already a precedent for humans causing a mass extinction. Look at what happened to the megaphone at the end of the Ice Age, right? There's your Exhibit A, right? So you have factions that are sort of centering around this idea that humans were responsible for this great mass extinction at the end of the Ice Age, and therefore this provides a precedent for what is happening now. Um, so those factions did not want to let go of the idea. So when you bring in a comet and some type of an externally triggered global catastrophe, they didn't want to go there. And so they basically, you know, marshaled their forces to try to suppress the heresy. And it's, it's a very interesting study of, of how they did it and how it sounds convincing when you read it. And I've gone through all of the papers on the Younger Dryas events very thoroughly, um, pro and con. And it, it was, it, it's really a, the, the ones who were opposed to the idea, it, it's very much a sleight of hand kind of thing, which, which we see going on right now in a bunch of different forms, right? But very much very prevalent in this. And because of the fact that I had done a, had a lot of background study in A, the extinctions, I've read hundreds of papers on the megafaunal extinctions. <clears throat> My interest in the Ice Age goes back, you know, 30 to 40 years. I've got some geological background. Those kind of studies really kind of prepared me to look at this, look at the, 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 the attempts to rebut, to refute the impact hypothesis. And uh, I, I could see through them. I, I mean, I could see the sleight of hand that was going on. And, and it would be things like this. Okay, so you had the pro, I'll call them the, the celestials, the pro-cosmic impact group goes out and collects some samples at the Younger Dryas boundary. They go back and they examine these samples for impact proxies. Right now, let's say that the impact proxies are microspherals or nano diamonds. <clears throat> right now, you got a picture. If there's a, if there's an impact and you have these incredible pressures and heat, and it produces out of the vapor, literally out of the vapor itself, these diamonds form, and they fall to the earth by the trillions. Right, but they're nano diamonds. It means you can't see them except with a high powered uh, electron microscope. Right, so. They fall and they litter on the landscape, right? Now, 12,000 years goes by, right? You've got, if, if they fall on a forest, they're going to be, you know, go down on the forest floor and you're going to have material accumulating. You're going to have floods. You're going to have erosion. You're going to have deposition. You're going to have all of these processes going on. So in some cases, this horizon 
that was the land surface that received these nanodiamonds, it's gone. In other places, it's buried, right? Now, last, uh, uh, last October, I went to the Murray Springs site right down uh, just north of the Mexican border in southern Arizona. And this is one of the areas where the black mat is prominently displayed uh, uh, after a bed that we can pull up and I can show you pictures of the black mat. Now, the black mat separates the Pleistocene below the Holocene above. It marks the boundary of the Younger Dryas. And it's in this black mat where the charcoal is found, where the, the nanodiamonds are found, where the microspherals are found, where the magnetic grains are found, where the iridium layer is found, where the platinum spike is found. Not all of these things in all of the places by any means, but all of these things have been found one place or another associated with that boundary, right? Below that boundary, megafauna. Above that boundary, hardly any megafauna. In North America, below that boundary, Clovis culture. Above that boundary, Clovis culture is gone, right? So now the idea is, is you have these people who are invested in this picture of humans rampaging over the landscape, slaughtering everything in their pathway so quickly that from the Bering Straits in Alaska all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, these animals couldn't escape this, this rampaging barbaric slaughter of these advancing hordes of Clovis people, right? And there's our precedent. Okay, here's we can invoke that whenever somebody questions the capacity of humans to cause a great mass extinction, we have that to invoke. Now here come these upstarts saying, no, no, it looks like it was something from out there that did it. They didn't like that, you see. And so they closed ranks. They wrote a series of articles. For example, one of the supposed refutations was they went out and they collected samples. They came back and they analyzed those samples and they didn't find anything. So now this is published in the press. Independent experts look at, at look at the Younger Dryas boundary and don't find any impact proxies. Therefore, there was no impact, right? So now the growing team of proponents, they go back out there. They look at the protocols of the groups that were setting out to refute the impact hypothesis. And what they discover is multiple um, transgressions, if you will, of the proper protocols. For example, if you got this very thin layer, right, and if you don't select your sample from exactly the right place, well, of course, you're not going to find anything, are you? Well, the, the, the proponents of it, who are some really big hitters in the scientific world, actually, um, geologists and astronomers and archaeologists and and um, people like that. Um, James Kennett, who's written over 500 scientific papers published in the peer review literature, a perfect, a prime example. Okay, these guys showed that the that the critics of the impact hypothesis took their samples in the wrong place. So if you take your sample from the wrong place and you go back to the laboratory and you don't find anything, well, that doesn't prove anything. You know, their sample was too large. Their sieve size was the wrong size. In other words, you're talking about nanodiamonds. When you sieve your material, you have to sieve it very to the very small fraction, right? Otherwise, 
you know, see, so you're, you're basically looking, it's the needle in the haystack thing. You know, if you're, if your haystack is this huge mound, you know, 10 feet high, and you got to find that needle as compared to a, a mound of hay that's a, a, a foot high, you see. So what they did was their sieve size, their sample size was too big. Their, sim, their sieve size was too big. So when they sieved the stuff, they were looking, you know, they had, to, there, there was too many, uh, you know, for example, there are t fungal spheroids that, that occur naturally without an impact, right? But these are very, they're difficult to differentiate between the two, and you have to use very powerful microscopes. They didn't use the right kind of microscopes to differentiate between the, the fungal spheres, spherules and the, the cosmic impact spherules. There was a lot of these protocols that they didn't follow, but the result was is that they, the three or four or five papers were written, all based upon this faulty, faulty protocols. Those papers claimed to refute the impact hypothesis, and that was published throughout the press that, oh, that impact hypothesis has been disproven now. Of course, what they did was the, you know, the proponents came back and did it, it, it did motivate them to do really, really high quality work, which they then did. And independent teams were inspired to go and look in various places. So by oh, 2015, 16 and there, you'd had eight independent teams now that had found impact proxies in various places, North America, Central America, South America, now in Africa, um, in, in Europe, in Syria. And so the, basically the, the rebuttal has been rebutted now. So we're back to, however, there's not still a definitive explanation about what happened. It's, was it a single event? And that's one of the questions. It was a multiple events. Was it a single impactor? Which I don't think it was. I think it was multiple impactors, which makes it to me more consistent. I think this is the, the, the direction the thinking is going. It's more consistent with the idea of a cometary swarm, Earth encountering a cometary swarm. Probably that was prior to the encounter at some point was part of a single nuclei. Uh, the disaggregated over perhaps a succession of splitting events, but essentially created a cluster of, of cosmic debris that the Earth encountered. In fact, it may have been even a repetitive encounter, because this is now possible that if you have uh, a, an, a comet that disintegrates in a regular orbit, like in a, say, an Apollo asteroid type orbit, or in an orbit between Earth and Jupiter where it could disintegrate and then litter its orbit with the, the, the debris, which is the byproduct of its disintegration. In the early stages of that disintegration, the material is going to be clustered, right? It's going to be concentrated in areas. But then as time goes on, that cluster begins to diffuse. It begins to spread out along the orbit. However, in the early stages of breakup, if the Earth encountered a swarm, that it could explain how you would have multiple impacts almost simultaneously. My thinking at this point is that it seems more consistent with a multiple impact event. In fact, my own research suggests that there were between seven and 10 impacts of varying sizes, um, enough to, um, you know, release 
let's say, an equivalent of 1,000 to 10,000 megatons of, of energy release and up. And then probably hundreds, if not thousands, of much smaller impacts. Now, when I say a smaller impact, I might be talking about something in the 1 to 10 or 20 megaton range, which is about the equivalent of one of you know, the U.S. nuclear weapon roughly um i you know you no doubt have heard of the tunguska yes. event of 1908 of course yes. you have that to me i'm going to i'm going to say that the most likely explanation for that in my mind is that it was a member of the torrid meteor stream for the simple reason that early morning june 30th 1908 is exactly when the earth is crossing the summertime torrids right when the torrid stream has just made its perihelion passage around the sun and is now coming from the direction of the sun. And it's ra the radiant point, the, the, the most closely identified radiant point based upon eyewitness reconstructions places its point on the emergence from the sky almost consistent, almost precisely consistent with where the torrid meteor stream would have emerged from the sky. So in other words, it was in the right place in the right time to be a member of the torrid stream. That doesn't prove that it was a member of the torrids, but it does certainly make a very strong circumstantial case, right? That that's what it was. And, um, you know, that's that earth crosses the torrid meteor stream twice each year, once in, in late June, early July, after it's made perihelion, you know, which means it's closest passage to the sun. It makes that it comes in from the direction of the Pleiades, um, which forms the shoulder of the bull, right? In the ancient astrological conceptions, the Pleiades is the shoulder of the bull. And so the bull, of course, is Taurus. And all cometary streams and meteor streams, which are ultimately the uh, the offspring of disintegrating comets, they are all named after the constellation that occupies the portion of the sky that they appear to emanate from, right? So the Orionids are coming from the direction of Orion. The Leonids are coming from the direction of Leo. Taurids from Taurid the Bull. And the radiant point of the Taurids is very close to just bullseyeing right on the Pleiades, which for me is always very interesting when you begin to look at the mythology surrounding the Pleiades um, and, and particularly how the Pleiades have played a role in a lot of very uh, interesting uh, esoteric and occult traditions, um, including Freemasonry, including uh, Mithraism, including Vedic traditions, even including Jewish uh, old Jewish legends, uh, Native American traditions, you know, you find the Pleiades playing this very interesting central role. And particularly in Mithraism, I think that there's a very overt connection between um, the the symbolism of the bull and the symbolism of the Pleiades with the, the rituals of Mithraism. But, you know, the, the, the so-called seven sisters in Greek mythology were the Pleiades. Right. Um, Right. And, and the Heliades uh, were associated with the Pleiades as well. And the, you know, the, the legends, when you get into the legends of the, of the flood in, in, and, and the destruction of the earth, like in, in Greek traditions, you had the, the story of Phaeton. Remember the son of Helios who tried to drive his father's chariot and couldn't keep it within the plane of the ecliptic. So it veered off and 
descended down to earth and set the earth on fire. And finally, Jupiter had to mount the heavens and hurl a great thunderbolt at the chariot and struck the chariot and Phaeton fell flaming to earth and fell into the river Eridanus and his sisters, the Heliades, wept at his demise and their tears caused the great flood. So right there, you know, in this codified form, when you talk about geomythology, there's a beautiful example of geomythology, the idea that myths contain actual information. It's just codified in different ways, but it's essentially telling the same stories. Yeah, that is fascinating. I want to go back, though, to something you were saying um, that kind of piqued my interest um, about, you know, a, a possible next great cataclysm. And you were saying how there are certain factions that don't like to admit that some of these are cosmically caused. Um, and recently, um, I think it was the past couple of years um, in the mainstream media, they were talking about how our magnetic North Pole is rapidly moving towards Siberia. And, you know, I've heard researchers say that if it goes too far, we could have a magnetic reversal. Um, what do you think the chances that we are approaching another great cataclysm of some sort or possibly, you know, an asteroid impact or anything like that? Well, I think, you know, if, if you start paying attention to the cosmic environment, there are typically close encounters about once a month. And the question in my mind has always been, are we seeing more because we have the technological capabilities to see and track things that we couldn't, you know, 50 years ago? Or is it, is it the flux of these things is actually intensifying? Or is it a combination of both? And at this point, without going into the lot of the background, my thought is that it might be a combination of both. I think that we have actually seen an increase in things uh, flying by the earth. But in either case, the point is, is when we start looking out into the cosm cosmic neighborhood that our planet resides in, we discover that, no, there's a lot of other inhabitants of this neighborhood, a lot more than we had imagined even a few decades ago. Now, how do we integrate that into our thinking? Well, w I think that two things. Um, one is that we are looking at the earth in ways we were never able to, you know, we have, you know, LIDAR now, ground penetrating radar. We have um, magnetic studies that, you know, we have technologies for looking into the earth and understanding the earth and looking at the proxies, uh, analyzing, you know, new dating methods that are allowing us to create these chronologies of past events. Um, if we go back a hundred years ago, you know, as far as uh, craters and astrobleams, which are the most direct evidence of impacts, we were down to just a few. You know, the very first one was early that was identified as such was Meteor Crater in Arizona, which is the big obvious classic hole in the ground. And that was not identified as such until, you know, the early 20th century. So, you know, if you go back to the realization that Meteor Crater was an impact, which it turned out to be uh, an impact of an iron asteroid. And then you have the Tunguska event of 1908, which was a much lower density object. In other words, the, uh, the uh, Arizona meteor crater object being an, 
uh, an iron asteroid, it probably had a density of at least five or six grams per cubic centimeter, which is, think about a, holding a piece of cast iron in your hand. The Tunguska object was probably more like a, uh, the density of, of a snowball, uh, an ice cube. Um, it may have been between one and two. It was low density. Well, as a consequence, the high-density object can quite easily penetrate the full atmosphere and strike the ground and leave a big obvious hole, you know, tens of thousands of years later. The lower-density object, like Tunguska, did not penetrate the atmosphere. You know, it did not strike the Earth. It blew up five or six miles above the surface of the Earth. And the shock wave of that explosion then moved outwards in a, in a radial fashion, in a wave front moving outwards. And the pressures were so extreme that when it intersected the ground, it just essentially mowed the old growth forests down, right? And you had over 800 square miles, several billion trees that were, that were just flattened, splayed out from the epicenter of the shock wave, right? Now, here, here's the thing. We know that happened in 2000, and, I mean, 1908. Something on a smaller scale happened in, what was it, 2014, February when... Right, I remember that, yeah. Chelyabinsk. Now, that was much smaller than Tunguska, and yet it was a very impressive event, for sure. And it broke some when, windows. Oh, yeah, 1,500 buildings were damaged. And, and oh, yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the... Um, some of the videos of the thing and the, 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 the sound effects of when the, the blast wave hit, it's, it's mind boggling. Um, and you realize that's just a little cosmic speck. Right. So two things to keep, keep in mind. First of all, when you look at the population distribution of these different types of objects from, you know, the high density iron objects to the low density, you know, almost, snowball-like objects, the middle, the carbonaceous chondritics are kind of right in the middle, you know, maybe about the, the same density if you picked up a, a stone next to the river, right? That's going to be in the middle. You've got a, you've got a piece of ice in one hand, a, uh, a stone in the other, and a piece of cast iron, right, in your third hand, right? So um, that kind of represents the range of, of possibilities, right? Now, when you go to the lower end of the spectrum, those can happen, but don't leave the kind of lasting evidence of their occurrence, like the iron asteroids or even the, 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 the more dense objects. However, here's the thing, Chris, the objects that are towards the lower density end of the spectrum are anywhere from five to 10 times more abundant than the other end of the spectrum. So if you start crater counting, and now there's pushing close to 200 craters on the surface of the Earth that have been identified, which are the scars of these cosmic encounters. You know, if, if it's meteor crater, it's a big hole in the ground, it's a crater. If it's covered over, and you only see it with, with ground-penetrating technologies to know that it's there, or you see uh, uh, some of the outcrops around with shocked quartz or impact proxies in it, but it's not an obvious crater. It's called an astrobleem, which translates as star wound, a star wound. So um, given that there's about 200 craters and astrobleems, 
And those are probably no more than found on basically 15% of the Earth's surface because we've barely begun to see, you know, what's in the oceans. Now, you know, the oceans comprise almost three quarters of the Earth's surface. So for every impact on land, you're going to have three impacts into the ocean, right? Now, an oceanic impact is going to be catastrophic. A land impact is going to be catastrophic, but they're going to be different. You know, they're going to be different. One of the things an oceanic impact is going to do is it's going to inject tremendous amounts, inconceivable amounts of water into the atmosphere. It's going to cause huge tsunami waves that will make landfall uh, on any of the surrounding continental areas or islands, you know, that are in that particular ocean basin. The rain out of the injection of water vapor into the atmosphere is going to cause extreme prolonged torrential rainfalls, much as all of the myths describe, you know, whether it's the Bible or whether it's the Hopi myths or, you know, the Vedic myths of their flood, you know, the Sumerian myths of tremendous, intense, prolonged rainfalls. We now know that that's totally uh, plausible scientifically. Right. Okay. So now here's, here's what we want to keep in mind is that oceanic impacts are going to be three times more prevalent than land impacts. Right. Now in land impacts, our, our discovery is pretty much limited to areas that are, for example, there's a lot of them found in Canada and in Northern Europe, in Scandinavian countries, astroblemes, right? That is because Northwestern Europe, more than half of North America was covered with great ice sheets. And those ice sheets were able to remove large sections of bedrock. Well, by doing so, they exposed what would have otherwise been the hidden cores of these astroblemes, right? So you've got that. Then you've got the occupied areas where there has been more, um, you know, studies of groundwater hydrology, more exploration for minerals and so forth. But you've got vast areas around the equator, which are forested, you know, just like right now, as we speak, the, the, the remains of tremendous, um, you know, city structures in the Brazilian rainforest that have been found using LIDAR that nobody knew was there, right? Well, now imagine that you got to even go even further under into the bedrock to find out if there's astroblemes there. Okay. So it, it, you could figure that the that the 200 astroblemes now identified, you might think 15% of the Earth's surface, 20%. So you could figure five times more astroblemes are there are that have been discovered on on the land. Now that makes close to a thousand. Then you figure that of that thousand, that there probably is that many preserved of various ages in the planetary land under the ocean there would be three times that many so now three thousand if there's a thousand land impacts that means three thousand oceanic impacts now so we're up to like four thousand potential impacts throughout the period from the paleozoic to the present now of those bear in mind that there's probably going to be something like five times or 10 times more impacts encounters that are going to be along the lines of the Tunguska event 
than the meteor crater in Arizona event. You see what we're getting at here? Thousands upon thousands of cosmic encounters that have not left a record. And those encounters could have also occurred and undoubtedly have occurred throughout, say, the Holocene, the last 10,000 years, and witnessed and experienced by human beings. And those events then um, encoded into the various stories and legends and myths and so on. And now to get back to your question about the geomagnetic field. Sure. Okay. The geomagnetic field, I believe that what we're seeing is residual movement. That's an after effect of what this, of the trauma this planet suffered between 10 and 14,000 years ago, roughly 11 and say, no, say 11 and 15,000, um, which, in, which bear in mind now, you know, you had over over half of North America buried under an ice sheet, at least as big, maybe bigger than the one that now covers the South Pole. And that is a huge mass of ice, you know, around central Canada, uh, along Hudson Bay and in Manitoba in that area, which would have been the, the center of the, the, the dome of the great ice sheet. It might have been a mile and a half or two miles thick. It was so tremendously heavy that it crushed the 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 uh crust of the earth down several thousand feet because of the weight right some force caused the rapid melting cataclysmic melting of that ice sheet over a very like a geological instant and all of that weight is being released from the continents back into the ocean basins now that shifting of tremendous amount of mass around the surface of the earth, we now know had tremendous seismic consequences and volcanic consequences. There were tremendous earthquakes associated with the deglaciation process and this huge transference of so surface mass. There also would have been effects on the earth's orbital stability and orbital equilibrium because of the redistribution of the surface mass. With the release of weight, in some parts of the planet and the increase in weights on other parts, you had isostatic rebound going up and you had isostatic pressure going down. Those vertical shifts are now out of equilibrium with their latitude because the mass of the earth, which is not perfectly rigid, is has more dis, greater mass distributed towards the equator because of the earth's uh, rotation on its axis. So it's actually 26 miles greater this way, east to west, than north to south. 26 miles, right? Now, if you start moving parts of the Earth's crust, which is normally distributed from the Earth's center of mass, depending on its latitude, okay, you move it out to here, suddenly it's not in the right latitude anymore. You push, you move it down. The consequence of that is, is in order for the Earth to to re-equilibrate itself, there needs to be lateral distribution of Earth's crustal mass as well as its to to as a response to this changing vertical movement, right? All of that is then, I think, going to cause major tectonic movements, accelerated continental drift, if you will, and is going to cause 
rapid de destabilization of the Earth's magnetic field as a consequence. Now, this is not proven, obviously, but I think that it's it's a line of fruitful inquiry that needs to be pursued. What in terms happened? Because given the empirical data for huge earthquakes, huge volcanic eruptions, um, it seems very plausible, if not um, uh, probable, that there would have to be geomagnetic consequences to that, the whole deglaciation process. So I tend to look at the movements of the poles is we're still seeing this oscillation that's probably going to go on another 10,000 years that is everything trying to get back into some kind of equilibrium in the aftermath of those events of 11 to 12 to 13,000 years ago. That's Man, my take is, on it. This is fascinating. We uh, could talk about these uh, ancient cataclysms all night. Uh, we've only got about 20 minutes left, though, and I wanted to get to a little bit of your take on the age of modern humans. Um, you know, we found evidence that and remains that have been found over 100,000 years old when the narrative, yeah. you know, is it, it's never gone that old. And, you know, they're finding evidence of even older um, remains, uh, possibly up to a million years old. And it's, you know, it's insane the discoveries that are coming out that prove the age of humans is, you know, modern humans is a lot older than we think, right? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, what's happening is the, as Graham Han Hancock likes to say, things keep getting older and older. Right. And that certainly does apply not to humans generally. I mean, I think that the oldest modern human skeletons now are dating to at least 180,000 years. In other words, finding, finding the remains of the skeletal remains of a person that would presumably be not that much different from how you or I look today, dress them up in a suit of modern clothes and put them out on the street. Nobody would take any particular notice of them, right? Modern humans, presumably with the same cranial capacity and therefore same brain size, presumably then with, you know, intellectual capabilities and so on, are being found at our, you know, 180, possibly 200,000 years old. Now, Who's to say that what we found is the oldest modern human? You see, here again, we have to we have to go beyond the limitations of the uniformitarian thinking, because in the last 150 to 200,000 years, there have clearly been multiple catastrophes that have occurred. And each catastrophe tends to dramatically affect the consequences of earlier catastrophes and earlier um, you know, earlier worlds that existed. And if I may, could I, can I do a share screen? Okay, let's see here. Um, all right. All right, this is this is a very interesting graph. It's now nearly a quarter century old, and it's still just as valuable today as it was when it was first discovered. This is for the oxygen isotope oscillations in the Greenland ice core. 
in ice cores, which which are direct uh, proxy for climatic change. When you look at this graph here, you see the shifts to the left mean cooling environment, shifts to the right mean warming environment. If we go down the right-hand scale here, this is this is time in thousands of years. So this is the present, and down at the bottom is 10,000 years ago, right? And if you go through here, one of the first things you got to notice is that no point is this a, a smooth line. It's oscillating one to three degrees constantly throughout the Holocene. And this is the Holocene, the last 10,000 years, which is now actually defined as 11,600 years ago. And you see, I mentioned earlier that there was a, a climate catastrophe at about 8,300 years ago when there was a very rapid global, global cooling. And you can see this spike right here, it registered in the Greenland ice cores. You see that little spike right there that I'm yeah. showing with my, okay. Right. That was a drop of about four or five degrees Fahrenheit <clears throat> almost instantaneously. Uh, if something like this happened now, it would put very serious stress on our global civilization. It would likely mean things like several decades of really cold years associated with multiple crop failures, right? Since our food supply depends upon, you know, a, a, an active agricultural industry and so on, if you had two or three years of crop failures, we've basically the human species has pretty much run out of food. What'll happen is as food gets scarce, you have famine, uh, people become weak, their immune systems get compromised. And once you have a lot of people with compromised immune systems, then you get pandemics, you get bubonic plague, you get black plague, et cetera, et cetera. And a real pandemic, like I'm talking about there, will knock out a third the population. Right. In other words, you go a given given city, a given town, a province, maybe a, a, a third to half the people have died, right? Okay, so what we're seeing here is a constantly oscillating climate. Two to three, just look right here. See this spike? Yeah. That's about a three-degree warming spike right there. What caused that? Well, we don't know for sure. But one thing is clear, it's not a smooth line. Right now, what I've done here is I've added in some alternating periods of cooling and warmth going back throughout this Holocene. And quite interesting, when you begin to compare what was going on historically with what was going on in terms of the, the northern hemisphere climate, right? Same graph, this vertical line represents the modern uh, average te global temperature, right? Superimposed. What you can see here is that the, the temperature, at least this is in Greenland, and it's probably representative of the whole Northern Hemisphere, not necessarily the whole planet uniformly. However, most of these changes were not strictly regional. They were reflections of something that's going on on a planetary level. But this vertical line right here represents the modern temperature. And you can see if you come up this is coming up. This is what was called the Holocene warm period, the climatic optimum that I was mentioning earlier. You notice how the climate here is all to the right of this line. This is the time when sea levels were higher than now 
and the global temperature was warmer than now. Interrupted by that one spike, and then you can see as we're coming out of the Holocene warm period, the, the, the magnitude of these oscillations begins to increase as, while it also shifts over to the left. The culmination of this shifting to the left side of the line was the Little Ice Age. And you notice I've got the Little Ice Age is separated by uh, two phases, the first phase and the second phase. In between those phases is the Renaissance. At the beginning of the Little Ice Age in the 1300s, you had just what I was talking about. You had a succession of crop failures between about 1320 and 1340. It left large portions of the population hungry and weak. So you then had famine, and in around I think around 1342, you had the uh, the Black Plague that started. Um, that was that was so devastating to European population. But you can go back through here, and you got the medieval warm period. This orange bar right here is during the great cathedral building period of Europe. Uh, the great the final final phase of the of the Mayan classical architecture the Vedic architecture, the final wave of monumental earthwork architecture in North America, of megalithic building in England, right? All of that's in this orange bar during the medieval warm period. And what, what enabled that was the fact that the warm period, we had a month extra growing season every year, and there was abundant food and a huge growth in human population during this warm period. So now there was the labor force to, to undertake these tremendous enterprises of sacred architecture, and there was enough food to feed them, etc. You go back and you've got a period of cooling here that was the Dark Ages. Then you get back to the classical Greece and Roman warm period with the rise of those civilizations. Then you go back to a cooling period right here, and this was the Bronze Age collapse. Um, and so, so it goes, the Pyramid Age, Old Kingdom of Egypt, Sumer, um, another phase, earlier Bronze Age phase. Here's the climatic optimum here during these. And during this climatic optimum was the recovery of the planet after the disasters of the Terminal Ice Age. It was the recovery of human population and so on. But I want you to look at this, Chris because this is where it gets really interesting. And it comes back to the question you asked about, you know, if we extend the, the tenure of human beings on this planet back yeah. to 150 or 200,000 years. I want you to look at the top portion of this graph to 10,000 years ago. And now we get back into the Pleistocene. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow is, is right. Yeah, that's a lot of movement. Now, you go back, here's 200,000 years. So we had ancestors for hundreds of generations that lived on the planet during while this was going on. Wow. Now, here would be a challenge, Chris. Take a band of intrepid co-workers and go back and try to establish civilization. Now that on the left side, that's representing the the cold, yes. the coldest phase. Okay. Yes. Wow, that's but insane. Look at this right here. Look at this warm global yeah. warming between like 120 and 150 thousand years. But see, here's the thing. Look, 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 look at this. Look at this spike of warming here. 
This was that 14,600 year event. And then you had plunging back into full glacial cold here, this point right here, this is the younger driest boundary right here, 12,900. And then this spike of warming is meltwater pulse 1B. Interestingly, this has been dated to 11,600 years ago. But Plato identified this 2,500 years ago in his prologue to Timaeus when he is talking about the great catastrophe that destroyed Atlantis, which he dates at 9,000 years before Solon's exile to Egypt, which occurred around 600 BC. So interestingly, that modern geological science has placed this pivot point between the Pleistocene and the Holocene at 11,600. They've identified a meltwater pulse, a spasm of global meltwater into the global oceans, which would have meant a rapid sea level rise. And that is precisely the date that Plato gave us 2,500 years ago. So right here, this is the story that we need to tell right here. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that those charts are great um, representations of what has happened cataclysmic wise and temperature wise throughout our history that has changed humanity. And it's, that's a really good um, resource for people to take a look at. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Now we have time for, for one more thing that I'd really like to cover before we have to close out for the night. All right. Um, I would like to get your thoughts on the possibility of Mars having an ancient civilization that was destroyed by a major cataclysm at some time in the ancient past. No. <laughs> well, now that's quite a question to, to throw at me when we're down to the wire. Well, um, we got about 10, 15 minutes, so. Oh, okay. well, you know, I, I don't say yes, I don't say no. Certainly the history of Mars is a very interesting story. And we're just realizing how, how different Mars used to be. I tend to, I, if I had to say humans on Mars uh, or some such thing, I would, at this point, see, here's the thing, Chris. When we begin to look at some of this mysterious evidence that we didn't hardly even touch upon tonight, uh, the, the kind of stuff that Graham Hancock gets into, the idea that there was a lot more going on in prehistory than we've recognized. Now, the graph that I think that I just showed you, I think is, is an indication of one reason why we would not find evidence. If somebody, look, take our civilization that we've created on the planet today and stick it anywhere in that pre, you know, 10,000 year ago, from the hop, from the younger Dryas back, when those oscillations are five to 10 times the magnitude of what we've experienced in the Holocene, take our modern civilization and drop it anywhere in there. And you know how much we're going to see of it today? 10,000, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years later? Zip. We're not going to see diddly squat. It would be completely lost in that noise. And so the point is, is that we can't really make any declarative or definitive uh, claims about what may or may not have been going back. Now, bear in mind that, that when you're looking at this as compared to this, right? That, that we're going back 11, 12,000 years ago. We've got to look at 150,000 years. It's been collapsed. It's been compressed vertically. So 
there could easily and undoubtedly were intervals within those spikes of 5,000, perhaps 10,000 years where civilizations could have arisen of some kind. Well, if you look at the history of civilization of the last 5,000 years, what do we see? Well, the first civilizations, I guess you'd say that, that got any kind of a planetary presence were maritime civilizations, you know, the Minoans, the Phoenicians, right? The, the ones that left architectural uh, uh, things in great stone, the megalithic builders, the Egyptians building the pyramids and so forth. But when you just consider the pyramids alone, you know, I've gone into great detail on the geometry of the pyramids and the geodesy of the pyramids and how it's, you know, I mean, I can say definitively that the great pyramids are an accurate representation of the scale of the Northern Hemisphere um, on a scale of 43,200 to one. Now, that idea has been dismissed by critics who look at it superficially and say, well, you can, anybody can play with numbers and come up with something, but which is true. The point is, though, if you have a number that has universal significance embedded in the Sumerian traditions, the Mayan traditions, the biblical traditions, um, you know, the Vedic traditions, and it's that core number that provides the scaling ratio for the pyramid. Well, that to me makes it very difficult to just dismiss it as, as a mere coincidence, right? So there are many, many examples of things that are out of context in the very earliest phases of, of human civilization, as we think of it. You know, if we mark the rise of civilization with the appearance basically of writing, well, that's well, history. History is with the, with the appearance of writing. And that goes back to ancient Sumer between 4,500 and 5,000 years ago. But if we consider that the first urban complexes were constructed between eight and 9,000 years ago in the, in the first couple of millenniums immediately following the end of the Great Ice Age, right? If we consider that the domestication of animals, uh, with maybe the exception of dogs, uh, primarily took place post-glacial, you know, the, the, the inception of agriculture and farming in those first millennia or two post-glacial, the dispersal of languages, same thing. You can, they trace back to what, 10,000 years ago. <clears throat> well, it, it, the old model is that there was just this long continuum of, of barbarism, of people never getting beyond the, the level of, of uh, nomadic hunter-gatherers, for tens of thousands of years, and then suddenly around 10,000 years ago, things begin to accelerate, and you begin to see cities, you begin to see agriculture, you begin to see domestic animals, you see languages spreading over, you see people spreading. This goes on for three, 4,000 years, and now we've got the flowering of civilization, 4,000, 5,000 years of civilization, and here we are, right? Well, I think we're in a position now to realize that it's very possible that what we're seeing post-glacial between eight and 10,000 years ago might actually be the rebooting of human civilization. And when you realize, like this picture that's behind me here. Now, we'll have to do another one of these, Chris, where we Definitely. really get into. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a 400-foot cliff behind me here. 
On the other side of this, there's another 400-foot cliff. Somewhere around 14,000 years ago, 40 million cubic feet per second of water gushed through this valley, which at the time was almost up to the level of these cliffs. Well, what you're seeing here is in a single event that ripped out 400 feet of bedrock along the previous course of the Snake River in southern Idaho. Now, let's suppose there was a, a, uh, a vigorous burgeoning Clovis community living along the banks of the, Saint, uh, of the Snake River, fishing, hunting, perhaps, perhaps actually even building things out of timber and logs and, you know, who knows, getting what kind of technological advances they might have had. Maybe nothing that looks like our fossil fuel-driven civilization with a lot of mechanistic things, machinery and cars and airplanes and all of this, although a car is not going to last much more than a century. You put a, an old car out in the field and it's going to mostly rust away you know, in 50 years, right? Okay, now you've got 40 million cubic feet per second of water that comes down this river valley. Well, whatever was here going on on the shores of this river before this flood is completely gone because you've got this flood ripped out 400 feet of bedrock. Now you consider that I, in my podcast, Cosmographia.com, I've had multiple episodes where I'm showing where virtually every river valley in North America has had gigantic floods in it. And of course, we can expand the net out. We talked earlier about tsunamis. The other place that an obvious civilization would arise would be along the coastlines, right? Particularly if you've got several cultural centers or, or urban complexes forming along the, the, the coastlines. It's the networks of trade that form that caused the cities oftentimes to be built up. Well, a couple of bolide impacts into the ocean say bye-bye to those coastal cities. They're right. gone. They're erased. Yeah. They're, they're eliminated completely, right? So the point is here is we have to take a time out and go, wait a second, we can't make any definitive claims about what may or may not have happened pre-glacial, anti-diluvial, I say, before the great floods that ended the Ice Age. And we really need to rethink that. And then on top of that, we have this mass and growing mass of tantalizing information that suggests that, that almost proclaims there's more to the story. I mean, come on, who's going to 482 foot tall, perfectly geometrically formed pyramid sheathed in white, polished white limestone. And what? That's going to be built by, uh, you know, subsistence farmers on their time off. Right. I mean, it, it makes no sense. And that's what we're going to have to get to get into next time is some of these um, ancient building methods, technologies, you know, uh, possible... Sure you know, energy technologies, all these things that, uh, that, that go along with this that I really want to talk about. But yeah, like you said, we barely scratch the surface of some of this stuff. So we'll definitely have to have you back on before you go. Um, let everyone know your website is randallcarlson.com and your, um, what was the name of your podcast? Cosmographia with a K cosmographia. All you got to do is go to randallcarlson.com and you'll get everywhere you need to go. And I'm partnering with this, a new internet platform called HowTube that is going to be hosting all of my video content, plus a lot of other stuff that we're creating. Uh, so there's going to be some amazing content there. And um, I think people need to check out how to, if you're getting frustrated with YouTube and Facebook and things, yeah. 
there are the great alternatives that are beginning to emerge. How to has been three and a half years in the pipeline of, of de development, and it is literally within one to two weeks of, of rolling out. So if you go to randallcarlson.com, you'll be able to get links right over to HowTube and uh, find out what's going on there. Because um, it's, uh, I think it's going to be one of the good solutions for, for this overbearing censorship that we're seeing. I'll also mention that that's the only source now for anything uh, authentically Randall. I, I've had to um, disassociate myself from the old website. Um, my name and my uh, likeness is still being used there. My uh, content is being sold, but uh, it's not authorized. And I receive nothing from the sales of my content over there. So bear that in mind. And anything you can get there, you're going to, if you can't get it now at randallcarlson.com, you soon will be. We're going to be relaunching uh, sacred geometry classes in the near future. So save your money and get the upgrade. Uh, yes, definitely. Use. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. And um, like you said, uh, we'll schedule something for upcoming month, um, maybe in March, possibly uh, early March. That would be great. Uh, and then until next time, uh, Randall, thank you so much for coming on. Fantastic information. You have an excellent evening. Well, thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. Definitely. Look to the next time. Yep. And everyone else, have an excellent evening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs>